This is AM Rush Sports. I'm your host, Alex Mitchell. We have a huge show today. We're bringing on AM New York Metro sports editor, Joe Pantorno. We're going over a lot. We're talking about the possible realignment of divisions in baseball where the Mets and Yankees could end up playing with each other. Then we're going to jump in to a ranking of the best sports movies of all time. And then we even talk a little bit of college football and how to make that more prominent in New York. So let's jump into it right now. We have Joe Pantorno with us. So the New York Yankees and the New York Mets could end up having a more intense subway series that may happen somewhere where there is not even a subway. Joe, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I mean, really, it's it's been the, the promise of it is is intriguing, at least for baseball fans. And with uh, baseball's kind of proposed idea of splitting up the league into three divisions of ten teams each and having them play at home ballparks is it's a fun idea to toy around with. And if they can get the logistics down and pass over some roadblocks, it would be incredible. And obviously, it would be headlined here in New York by the. That's the Yankees rivalry that would actually be a legitimate rivalry. So really exciting stuff. So what else have you heard about the new proposed half, maybe more than half, condensed season that the Major League Baseball is thinking about? Yeah, it really hasn't been uh, much divulged about it. Um, You're looking at a season where it would be – uh, at least 100 games, which would mean the season would be starting in July, I would I would assume, or late June, I guess, earliest. But, uh, again, that's all dealing with the unknown of how uh, the outbreak of the virus will be subdued. Uh, hopefully, you know, we find a solution sooner rather than later for the obvious reasons other than sports. But... Um, if teams can get back in the ballpark with no fans uh, in respective cities, that would be fantastic. Obviously, I think that there's going to be some huge roadblocks in terms of trying to sell a team to travel into one of the hotspots. For example, uh, you know, you take uh, the Blue Jays or the, the Rays or the Marlins from the East Division and tell them they have to travel up to New York. Uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people would be keen on that unless – you know, the numbers in, in the Big Apple really plummet. Um, but at least there's some form of a groundwork being laid. Uh, again, a lot of it is hypothetical, but it's, it's promising regardless. So it seems like the new direction that the league is taking, rather than doing the two neutral site style concepts of you put the NL in Arizona, you put the AL in Florida, it seems like they're trying to find a way of keeping things the way that they are and having teams play in their home ballparks, even if it is in New York. And, you know, let's be honest, City Field right now is in one of the most afflicted areas of coronavirus. If I'm an away team that normally wouldn't even have to play the Mets, I would feel uneasy, not even for the sake of the players, but the team personnel that's traveling with them, the people that are handling all of the luggage, the training staff, because it's not just like it's going to be the starting lineup in the dugout and the manager. There's there's a pretty big operation that comes with the logistics of moving 
a team on an away game if you really think about it. Right, and I think this whole premise of possibly playing their games at the home ballparks is a way to appease some of the players that have already spoken up and said that they wouldn't be willing to isolate themselves at a neutral site for three or four months at a time. We heard Bryce Harper speak out. He has a newborn. Uh, we heard Zach Wheeler speak up. He, uh, I believe his wife is due in two months or so. Um, so really what that would mean is, um, you know, it allows these players to kind of stay close to home with their families and then deal with a potentially semi-normal road trip. But like you said, there, and, you know, that we both touched on, um, you know, there's going to be hesitancy to travel to New York. And I think what Major League Baseball should do, and it might not be the most fair concept, uh, they should look at taking teams that are in these hot spots and these heavily afflicted areas and put them in neutral sites. Uh, it, it does put them at a disadvantage of sorts, but at the same time, it's ensuring the health and wellness of the players and the team personnel. What might be an interesting concept and something to have fun with that I don't know too many people that would be opposed besides the fact that it is in the middle of nowhere, but as I know you've been keeping up with the news, Governor Cuomo is preparing to do more or upstate New York is closer to opening than downstate New York. And obviously for a lot of reasons, there's less population and their cases are significantly dropping would if there no if there aren't going to be fans anyway, is it the craziest concept to have the Mets and Yankees play at Doubleday Field in Cooperstown? That's that's certainly an option. I mean, upstate New York has a ton of possibilities and baseball stadiums, albeit minor league facilities, to play in. And yeah, the players are going to have to deal with a little bit uh, less ideal amenities in terms of the clubhouse and uh, technology, I guess, around the stadiums and whatnot. But, yeah, you can play at Double Day Field or you can play in Binghamton. The Mets have a minor league affiliate up there. Uh, you can play in, um, I, I think it's Kingsport. They still have a team around there. Um, so there are, there are options to be had. And, uh, it, you know, I, it, it keeps them semi-local, I guess. Granted, it's still, you know, three or four hours away, but um, I, I feel like it's better than putting them in a completely different state or having them share a home stadium with another major league team. So I'm sure that that's actually not a bad idea. And the reason I'm suggesting that is two things. Like you said, maybe they don't have the amenities for a clubhouse, but just like when people film movies, you bring a mobile trailer, and that becomes your clubhouse that you put in the parking lot. It's not like you're taking up fans' parking anyway. And Cooperstown is easy to fly into. They have an airport dedicated there for people that don't want to brave the four-hour road trip upstate or what is more than four hours for a lot of people, to head upstate. So it's easy to get to in a sense of a team taking a private jet, and at least you still get a feel of some classic baseball. It's like, okay, it's not Yankee Stadium, it's not City Field, but they're playing next to the Baseball Hall of Fame, so it still feels close to home in that sense. Exactly, and 
you know, really since the season is hypothetically starting in June or July, uh, you're not going to deal with, uh, you know, say early spring games where the temperatures are still in the 30s or 40s. Granted, I mean, if the season extends to October or late October or early November, sure, you know, weather might become an issue, but really you're playing in what's considered the birth of, uh, you know, the birthplace of baseball, even though it really isn't the birthplace Hoboken, of baseball. New Jersey. But it's, that's right. Hoboken, New Jersey is exactly. Um, so, but again, it's, it's baseball in one of its purest settings. Uh, so definitely I think that would be really fun to see. And even if you want to do something more downstate, what's to say you can't use the military academy at West Point? Yeah, they have uh, they have great facilities. I mean, I've been there a few times uh, in my life, luckily enough. And um, really, there's you know the, the Mets and Yankees are lucky enough where they're in a state where you know you're a stone's throw away from a multitude of places that could offer decent enough amenities where if you're in a pinch, you know, you could still play baseball and still have a semblance of a home field advantage to it, I guess. I think that keeping the Mets and Yankees, as heartbreaking as it sounds, out of New York City might ease a lot of tension. And, you know, at the end of the day, it might end up saving lives. And if fans can't go to see these games anyway, you might as well play it extra safe. There's no reason for anyone to get sick, and maybe it wouldn't be the players, but say the trainer has an elderly mother and he carries it, and heaven forbid someone ends up passing away through that. If you're just in a safer environment, and again, the fact that it is Cooperstown, it is, as we both called it, the purest form of baseball, even though technically it all happened in Hoboken, the double day thing was a bit of a a myth, and I'm I'm sure you agree with that, and we can have a full on conversation about that because I know you have a lot of strong opinions on the origin of baseball. But I think that doing it in Cooperstown is a way to make it still feel authentic and like, hey, this is our game. We're not just ad libbing. We have a way to make this very wholesome. Yeah, and, and really, if, if you think about it, baseball is, you know, baseball's hallowed grounds are kind of a lie almost. And again, I, I do have some pretty strong feelings about this because uh, Abner Doubleday was apparently nowhere near Cooperstown, New York in 1839 when baseball was um, apparently invented. And uh, th- that's the thing. People just think that the game of baseball came from somebody's mind where they plucked out all of these rules and parameters that were just perfect, you know, that, uh, you know, I'm going to make a, a bat and ball game with a pitcher's mound 60 feet, six inches away and base pads 90 feet apart. And, uh, you know, there's three outs in an inning and you get three strikes per at bat and whatnot. Really baseball was, you know, has evolved from a multitude of bat and ball games throughout the, throughout the centuries. Um, and you know, we, nobody really knows where it came from, to be honest. Uh, we'd like to think that it evolved from, you know, rounders and cricket. It was some kind of hybrid of that. Um, but really, you know, I, I or nobody ever really should have an answer of who invented baseball, but one of the founding fathers of 
the modern American game should definitely be Alexander Cartwright, who founded the New York Knickerbockers Baseball Club, who played their games in uh, starting in 1845 at the Elysian Fields in Hoboken, New Jersey. Um, and again, we can kind of spin off on this and talk for three hours or not, but for the interest of time, at least, um, <laughs> you know, I, I guess Cooperstown kind of through the luck of the draw, uh, kind of became the unofficial, well, you know, the unofficial home of baseball. So, and for everyone tuning in for the first time, that's learning this slightly lesser known, but very truthful facet of the sport. Now, the fields that they played on in Hoboken, they're right by the waterfront near the PATH train station, correct? Correct. So it's an easy walk if you want to go see it, especially now with everything going on. If you want to get some fresh air on the water, you're close to the birthplace of baseball if you're in New Jersey. Yeah, and it's it's really kind of a a hidden gem, you would say, because I'm going to go out on a limb and say 90% of – People around our age have no idea that it exists where it does. And, you know, we always kind of have these connotations that baseball is this pastoral game that, you know, started in the fields and, and you know, people who were trying to leave their closed rooms, you know, were able to get a breath of fresh air and, and play this perfect, beautiful game. But in reality, baseball was developed and honed in, you know, New York City in these crowded areas. And the reason why, you know, they had to go to Hoboken is because there was no space to really perfect their game. So they had to get on the ferry, go across the river and, and play, uh, play their games in New Jersey. Not the first time two New York teams have done that truthfully. And uh, I'm sure you've seen this, but I think the best cinematic adaptation of the invention of baseball came in the Adam Sandler film, the ridiculous six with Abner Doubleday. Yeah, I actually just watched that movie for the first time like three weeks ago. And uh, it was it was pretty hilarious. And again, as long as people don't take that as gospel, you know, I could I can really enjoy the moment for sure. But yeah, I, I thought that movie was absolutely hilarious. And uh, the reason I'm bringing up films right now, I want to delve into our next topic today, something that you and I have been anticipating for a while. And we're going to go head-to-head, and discuss the best sports movies, preferably fiction, because anything else, true stories, documentaries, that's a a whole nother gorilla. But we will make exceptions for extremely compelling stories. We're going to talk about the best sports movies ever made, sport by sport. We're going to take them head-to-head. Since we're on the topic of baseball, Joe, let me get your thoughts on the best baseball movie. And you can give me a few, and we'll narrow it down, you and me. I'll give you mine, you give me yours, and we take them head-to-head, and we ultimately come to a conclusion. All right, yeah, there's uh, there's probably like a big three or four when it comes to baseball movies for me. Um, and I guess it's varying degrees of uh, comedy, I guess you could say. Um, really, uh, growing up, I think one of my favorite movies of all time, and it's probably in my top three, uh, is Major League. Uh, I love those movies. It's just, it's a feel good story. It's got some comedic aspects to it, but it's also, you know, kind of captures the essence of, you know, kind of the ball player's journey. You know, those looking to catch on, those playing the underdog, those on their last legs. Um, so, you know, it kind of provided a Cinderella story that was 
fiction, but at the same time could almost kind of be believable, save for a few parts here and there. But um, I love Major League. Uh, the Natural, obviously, is always a classic. Um, it's just, I, I, I don't even know. It's still just one of those movies where you, you get goosebumps in the final scenes as ridiculously Hollywood as the ending is when he it's that home run into the lights and the sparks are flying and he's rounding the bases. You know, it, it's the most ridiculous thing ever, but still for some reason, because Robert Redford was just so damn compelling in his role of Roy Hodge. You just, you know, you're rooting for the guy. So it was, you know, one of those moments where you're out of your seat and cheering the first time you saw it. And um, Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner uh, kind of connecting you know, the days of yesteryear for baseball to uh, at the time when the movie was made, the late 80s. Um, I, I really loved that movie. And, and James Earl Jones was an incredible supporter in that in that film. And uh, that final catch scene with his dad probably had everybody in the house choking up. So, um, yeah, I, I guess those would be my top three. And, and I mean, there's so, there's so many to go off it because I think there have been a ton of baseball movies that, you know, between like the the late eighties and and mid nineties, they they were kind of churning them out for a little bit. But I guess I would put those as my top three. Joe, let me ask you: Is this heaven? <laughs> no, it's it's Iowa and the AM Rush podcast. You know it. <laughs> um, so I have a very hot take for you, which I've teased on one of our last shows. I personally believe, and I love Major League. I think Major League Two. This is one of the few instances where a sequel trumps the original film. I really find Major League Two to be hilarious. Pedro That's... Serrano finds peace, and he's no longer his his vicious voodooish self. I loved Hiroshi Kamikaze Tanaka. I thought he was really really funny, and the new catcher, that kid Rube, where he reads the articles. I don't, it just felt like the movie was an excellent continuation of the story to me. Yeah, I see. I'm, I'm kind of in a different boat where, you know, it's like, you know, the original Major League and it's like, that's it for me. Like, I've seen Major League 2 a few times and I think they go for more of the comedy route. Um, and I know, you know, Rick Vaughn's romance with his publicist and the school teacher and the, and the, the, the inner city kids and like that's whatever but you know there are just some writing things that just never allowed me to get to the movie where you know pedro serrano's running to the outfield to check on pigeons instead of rounding the bases and and, and really what gets me the most is is the final scene where you know rick vaughn rediscovers his bad boy self and he comes in the bullpen with this stupid leather vest on which is a uniform um no no and and it, it's breaking the rules and you know he comes in and puts on the stupid glasses and he and he tells the coach rick taylor that he wants parkman uh with i i believe it was runners on first and second yes he loads the bases deliberately he wanted he wanted to walk the lighter hitting batter who goes nameless and he wants to to face the big bad slugger in in parkman which I think is the dumbest thing, and any MLB manager would would uh, obviously turn it down immediately. Um, and and it would have become 
I, I actually would have believed it more if there were runners on second and third with two outs. Because then you walk the guy and then you create a force at any base. Like that's it's just like a little thing. It's like such a simple thing that they could have gone around and, and it would have made that moment that much more believable. And I guess like to me, like that's always nagged me for however many years this movie's been out, but like that's why I like I can't get into it as 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 silly as that sounds. So I get that, and it is a flawed movie, I will openly admit that. And you're right about I didn't particularly like how they handled Wild Thing in any bit of his storyline throughout the movie. But for me, what really did it was when the manager gets a heart attack. Yeah. Mid, mid, and maybe, I don't know. It's just the way it happened was so funny. And then before the big game against the Chicago White Sox, he's in the hospital. Jake Taylor visits him and says, whatever you do, don't give him one of this win one for me speech. See? Yeah. And he does the complete opposite, gives him this heart-wrenching thing that after the doctors told him he'd be fine, and then he's listening to the game on his Walkman even though he's told not to. For me, that part of it was the redeeming element to the movie. Between that and I really thought Tanaka was a great character pickup. He was so funny in just the way that he did everything, everything he says in Japanese to Miss Rachel Phelps. There were parts of it that I just saw okay, this is a great way to continue the story. But you're right. You're certainly right about everything you're saying in the sense of how they handled Wild Thing and maybe Serrano was a bit too zen in trying to resuscitate a pigeon in the outfield. I, I get that too. I really do. I thought the um, the fan that begins protesting, he starts as a diehard and then he ends up hating the team even though he continues to buy tickets. That was a bit silly. Well, see, that part I actually kind of understand because I grew up a Mets fan. Ah. And, yeah, you'll you'll find a lot of those people in the fan base, and you'll find those people, you know, you'll find Knicks fans like that too here in New York. But, um, yeah, like you said, that uh, that was actually probably my favorite part of the movie is when Lou is in the hospital and he's going ballistic with the transistor radio and the, and the nurse comes in and she goes, what's wrong? And, like, there's some English antique show on. He's watching some English soap opera. Yeah, it was absolutely hilarious. So for me, that made it that compelling moment. And then when they win, it's like, I love this. I love this English stuff. Like, <laughs> Oh, man. So yeah. Me, it's, uh, yeah. At least we can – I think we can agree that the third one should never have existed and can, like, burn in a fire somewhere. Yes, and there's another movie sequel about baseball, which I don't think many of our listeners are even going to know about. And it is my unfortunate – responsibility to bear this grave news that there is a sequel to the bench warmers that was a dumpster fire like the cleveland browns were a few years ago. <laughs> uh yeah i can honestly say i i never saw bench warmers too um i saw the first bench warmers and you know i thought it was funny for what it was and you know that's uh i i, I don't know there are some movies like that where it's just like uh kind of like stupid comedy almost. And like that one was like, I don't know. It just kind of like towed the line for me, but I, I, I still really like the movie, but yeah, it's, it's obviously on a list of top baseball movies. There are so many that I would put before it, like, like bull Durham. I mean, that's uh you know, 
that was a late eighties movie that came out just a little bit before my time. And I had to wait a while to see it because, uh, you know, it wasn't, uh, age appropriate. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't mature enough to watch it, but, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I do have to give the bench warmers some credit, but no, I can honestly say I've never seen bench warmers too. You are not missing anything. It doesn't even have much of the original cast besides John Lovitz in it. And, Oh God, if you look at their Twitter page, we have more of a Twitter following than the Benchwarmers 2 fan page does. Or not the fan page, like the official verified movie page. It had like 100 people the last time I checked. Yikes. Which I didn't things? even know they had a Twitter page. I was 12 when I saw the original Benchwarmers. And there are two things because me and my friends can quote this movie religiously. That's how much we love it. And and the fact that it had baseball in it was just an added bonus to the comedy. Uh, Adam Sandler actually produced that movie. I don't know how many people know that, but I always like putting that out there. That that was him, Happy Madison. Of course, you get, um, oh gosh, what's his name? Rob Schneider. You have, oh man, what's um, John Heater. John, John Heater, Napoleon yep. Dynamite. And David Spade teaming up to be what is probably one of the funnier comedy trios and again if they did a sequel with the real cast i i would have kept an open mind but something that i like about the bench warmers in all of its goofiness there is a deep underlying message that baseball is meant for everyone and that's the whole thing at the end is that the nerds and the the athletes they all get along and you know they show nelson how to hit and he says he can help them with their social studies homework and to me, what I like about Sandler's movies, particularly his sports ones, is as silly and goofy as they are, they have a really good underlying message, which is baseball is supposed to bring us together. It's meant to be for everybody. And, and there's so many jokes in between that. I mean, all I have to do is say, you're in the bushes. And I'll start laughing, thinking about that scene. And Reggie Jackson's in it. That's the other thing. Reggie Jackson yeah. makes a great cameo. But I think for me, and this goes back to what we were saying before about being baseball purists, the purest baseball film out there, in my opinion, is The Sandlot. Yeah, yeah, The Sandlot is is, is just one of those instant classic nostalgic movies where – you know, I, I've never met somebody who hasn't liked Sandlot because we've all been or most of us have been those kids at some point in our lives where we have a core group of guys and, you know, you just go out on a summer day and you just you play ball until, you, you know, you can't see your face, you know, until the lights go out or until you get called, you know, home for dinner or whatever that might be. And, and you know, it, it kind of helped I guess, uh, you know, reveal or, or, or put it out to the mainstream, just how, how much those moments kind of meant for all of us. Because again, every red blooded American kid, you know, spent their days on, on either the ball field or the basketball court or, you know, the roller hockey rink, whatever it might be. But yeah, uh, Sandlot will always, always hit home for a lot of us. And the reason I love it so much is, even though it – well, it technically does involve a pro sports team at the end. To me, that is where the dream of baseball begins. 
is in the sandlot with your buddies as kids, spending what you remember as the best summer of your life, just playing baseball. You don't keep score. There are no outs. You just play until, like you said, you're called home for dinner or you go to the pool or get chased by a dog that ends up becoming your friend. (laughs) To me, that just – that showed – what baseball is meant to be. And I'm sure you're going to know who said this. I don't remember off the top of my head, but who said baseball was meant for kids? Adults just screw it up. Oh, you know what? I, off the top of my head, I don't, I know that quote too. Um, really thought you would know that. Dang. Well, besides the point, but that to me is, that's what baseball is. Baseball. It was, um, it was, it was Bob Lemon, Bob Lemon. There we go. Yes. But to me, that is why it's the greatest baseball movie, because it shows how a childhood dream translates into not just Benny the Jet Rodriguez stealing home and and playing for the L.A. Dodgers, but look at Scotty Smalls and how he starts a career in the broadcast booth. To me, that's how beautiful it is that you can take people from such different backgrounds, and kind of the Benchwarmers does it in a sillier sense, but again, it's the same premise. Baseball is meant for everyone, and it's something that we can all unite on, even if we like different teams. And I mean, when you look at all the hats that the the Sandlot kids are wearing, you get some Yankees ones, you get some Dodgers ones, no one cared. It was It brought them all together. And to me, that just... If there's a baseball movie you want to show someone that doesn't know anything about the sport, I think that's the one that you show them that would get them interested, personally. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And yeah, it's again it's it's baseball in its innocence, uh, how you'd put it, and you know, where there's you know, the game has a place for you no matter your your skill set almost and um you know, you have Benny going to the pros and, you know, the other one going to the broadcast booth. And again, that, you know, yeah, the that guys like us, you can't play it. You're right. You talk like about us. it. Right. Exactly. Where, you know, you come to the realization in high school that, Hey, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to make the major leagues. Then I'm not going to be a starting first baseman for the Mets, which is a tough pill to swallow for me at the time. But, <laughs> you know, you, you love the game so much and, and how can you get into it? And, you know, it's there's there's a way for everybody to get involved, even if you aren't, you know, the the all star. So that's what it, it helps portray that really nicely. And uh, two honorable mentions for me: Moneyball. I thought that that was very well done. And another one, uh, kind of a kids' movie, but Little Big League, where the twelve year old kid inherits the Minnesota Twins. That was a fun yeah. story. I wouldn't put it as yeah. the best, but it's a fun story that. If you have the time, you should certainly watch it. Definitely, little, little Big League I think is underrated, and and I put it in the same breath as Rookie of the Year with Henry Rowan Gardner, oh, who you know gets a fire ball of a of an arm from a fall and pitches for the Cubs, and you know I I think those are again two early '90s classic baseball movies for kids, and that's gonna you know stick around for a lot of kids our age and whatnot, but. Moneyball, I, you know, Moneyball, I kind of respected. I, I liked, but obviously, whoever wrote it or the powers that be, they, they didn't tell the whole story, which, again, kind of like Major League Two, I, I have problems with Moneyball because, you know, the way they make it look, you know, they, 
they they sign you know they sign a guy like Scott Hatterberg and suddenly they're winners. But really, like throughout the entire film, they don't mention that they had a fearsome pitching staff of Barry Zito and Tim Hudson, Hudson and Mark Mulder. Um, you know, Miguel Tejada was an MVP uh, in the, you know in two thousand and one. And uh, Eric Chavez was an all-star third baseman, and they just there was no there was no mention of it. There was nothing about it. It was all you know like a, like role players, and and I, I don't know. It just didn't. It, it just it, if it included the whole story, like that's one thing, and I think I would have liked it a lot more. But the whole movie, I'm like, we're just we're not going to talk about this. I do get what you're saying, and Hollywood has uh, never been one to. Let the truth get in the way of a good story. And that's why – because you're right. There's a lot of historical inaccuracy, and I'm going to call it historical because baseball is a huge part of American history. There are inaccuracies in it, and that is always a big pet peeve of mine when something told – because even if you mention that, it's still such a great film. And it, it to me, it doesn't deter the story. If you include the fact that you had all of this aspiring talent, that all you needed to do was fit these pieces in. To me, it would have had more of a feel like We Are Marshall, where it's rebuilding and it's more legitimate versus just this magic, oh, we're going to save a bunch of money and get a team in and we're still going to lose in the divisional round of the series. But, hey, he's a great general manager. Yeah, it was. it, it, it just felt more like a film about, like, tooting one's own horn rather than I, I mean sure like if you look at it what Billy Bean did it, it sort of paved the way for some of these smaller market teams to compete and, you know we've seen it recently with a team like uh, you know the Rays and the Kansas City Royals won a World Series in 2015 and you know I, I get it but at the same time I mean I feel like there's so many other stories in Major League Baseball to tell yeah. uh, than, than you know than Moneyball you're certainly right about that. If you could pick an MLB story that should be made into a film, what would you do? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that's that's a tough question. I mean, I personally am a – I'd like to think I'm a history buff of the earlier games. Um, you know, really something along the lines of something in the dead ball era or, you know, something in the twenties where, you know, I would do a, uh, a movie about, uh, Grover Cleveland Alexander, um, and how, you know, this was a hall of fame picture, uh, pitcher and he went off to war and he came back and he was, um, you know, he was just mentally destroyed by what he saw and he was driven to alcoholism and he suffered seizures and, and he came back and he still decided like he was going to pitch. And, you know, this, this great hall of famer is in the final years of his career. And in 1926 in the world series against the New York Yankees, who were a year removed from being, you know, arguably one of the greatest teams in, in baseball history. Uh, he comes in cold in relief as like a 40 year old in the ninth inning of, of game seven. And, uh, he sets down murderers row and like bases loaded jam, uh, something along those lines. I mean, those are stories I think that baseball needs to tell. And I think they need to also kind of bring light to some of their 
earliest heroes and, and some of their shortcomings? Because obviously when you look back at baseball and you, you think about, I guess, some of the pioneers of the game amongst them, obviously, you know, Babe Ruth is one thing. And I think the storytelling that involves him is at, at one point tiresome, but at the same time, we really haven't had a good movie about him because the one with John Goodman, I think, is absolutely trash. But <laughs> that's just that, that that's just me. But, that's a safe assumption. Uh, I, I mean, you know, I, I I think a legitimate movie about Babe Ruth is one thing, but I also think that we need to shed light about, say, a guy like Cap Anson, who, yeah, we we look at him and he is regarded as the first premier hitter in baseball history. And it's true. He was the first guy to ever record 3000 hits. Um, he was such an integral part of the Chicago white stockings franchise. Now the Chicago white stockings became the Cubs, but after he left, cause he spent something along the lines of 20 years with the team. Um, they changed their name to the orphans because he left the team. Wow. Um, yeah, he would, and again, it's all these like heroic stories about him, but at the same time, he was a bigot and a horrible racist, and he was the man who helped drive the gentleman's agreement that kept blacks out of baseball for as long as they did. It was him. He refused to play the Toledo Blue Stockings, who had a black catcher, Moses Fleetwood Walker, um, and his constant refusal led to major league owners at the time saying that they wouldn't sign um, – any people of color. And that became known as the gentleman's agreement. And from 1884 to 1946, you, you didn't have, you didn't see it in baseball until Jackie Robinson came around and, and broke the color barrier. I think that that would be a very compelling story, especially now and how many reflective films are made about the days of really intense segregation I think if any Hollywood producers are listening, they should really give us a buzz because those are some great ideas you've got. So now, going head-to-head, which movie would you pick to go up against The Sandlot for us to determine what's the best one? Oh, boy. Yeah, see, I would probably – I guess I would go Field of Dreams. Um, As much as I love Major League, as much as I love Bull Durham, and I love The Natural – You know, Field of Dreams kind of provides that same sort of innocence and and kind of helps show just how important baseball's been to the American landscape and and what it does for people. So, yeah, that's, you know, baseball, I feel like, is the toughest sport to kind of whittle these movies down on. So, either way, James Earl Jones is a winner. Yeah, great point. I will concede the Sandlot to Field of Dreams on the condition that Field of Dreams covered, crossed more boundaries, literally. They they go to Fenway, they're in Iowa, and you have the flash, or no, well, you get the flashback in the Sandlot too. You get the force ghost of Babe Ruth uh, checking in on Benny, taking the, the Hank Aaron rookie card. Um, yeah. But I will say that Field of Dreams covers more ground in the sense of how baseball brings us together and the wholesomeness of the sport and that you can be an academic, an author, and still have such a a great affinity to the game. And again, that it's for everyone. No matter what your discipline is, you can be into fine arts 
and be a diehard Yankees fan or Mets fan or whatever team you pull for. It, it just shows how universal it is. And I think that is why baseball is America's pastime, because no matter what you're affiliated with, baseball has impacted your life in some sort of a way. Yeah, I, I feel like there's really no wrong answer. Uh, you know, if, if, if we were to put that, like, list of top fives out there, I mean, you know, every, everybody can make a compelling argument for each one. And, and really, I mean, based, something about, you know, just baseball movies, they, they just kind of hit different. And, you know, here I am, I, I've kind of been asking, like, wondering in, in years, you know, recent years past, wondering, like, where the good baseball movies have kind of gone because with, you know, the technology that we have today, you know, they can recreate anything. I mean, if, you know, I, I know 42 came out and, and, and listen, I am a, a Jackie Robinson idolizer. Um, he was one of my heroes growing up. I really, I, I, I can't speak any more highly of the guy, but I, I think like 42 kind of fell short. And I think maybe because I had such high expectations about it, but you know, Moneyball came out however many years ago, eight, nine years ago. And, and really, you know, we, we need to have kind of like a, a renaissance of, of baseball movies now yeah. where, you know, like we have the technology, we can build it. Like let's, let's, let's get him to, let's get him to do this. But I, I don't know. No, I'm with you on that. I agree. I think now more than ever, a vintage film about baseball would be highly successful. And I think a really fun, almost lighthearted, maybe not exactly like a Forrest Gump-esque movie because that's a little too cheesy. But I think you could get a really light yet impactful story about Yogi Berra. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, he's one of the greatest characters of you know in baseball history not just one of the greatest catchers and uh you know that would definitely be a fun project to to kind of explore but yeah i mean you know that's the great thing about baseball there have been there have been so many characters that have kind of been lost to the annals of time and you know you say Barra and, and a, a quick little anecdote and then you know we can move on because i'm sure I'm, I'm chewing your ear off here i love it. um that's, I'm, I'm glad. I, I appreciate that. Um, there was a pitcher in the early 1900s, and his name was Rube Waddell. Uh, he's a Hall of Famer, uh, was one of the premier pitchers of, of his time, and, and still probably one of the greatest pitchers of all time. And He was such an eccentric character, um, where, I, and I use the word eccentric, but you know now I'm sure medical professionals today would have labeled it something else. Um, he was, um, I, it was almost like he was, he was almost kind of like child where he was this great pitcher, but fans could actually distract him by holding up like puppies in the crowd or like shiny <laughs> objects. He was obsessed with fire and fire trucks where if a fire truck drove past the stadium on the day he was pitching, he had to be held back. Oh um, from him going after it. Uh, there was a teammate of his, uh, Ossie Treckenghost, where um, they actually had to put a clause in his contract that Rube couldn't eat crackers in bed. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 
just absolutely wild because at the time, uh, travel amenities were awful compared to what they are today. And when teams would travel, uh, not only did you have roommates, but you actually had to share a bed together on some road trips. So Waddell's roommate or bunkmate, I guess, uh, actually had to put in a clause in his contract because I guess he just couldn't stop eating in bed. Um, so he was like one of baseball's really like first colorful characters. And, and I think that's somebody that should at least be kind of brought back into the light here because he, he really did. He, he lived an, an amazing life and, and it was, uh, unfortunately shortened. He was actually helping victims of a flood and he contracted pneumonia and passed away in his thirties. Um, but again, I, that, that's a story I feel like baseball should be telling. Like some of these old school characters that, you know, kind of defy at least today's standard of belief. I, I feel like they could have a lot of fun with it. I think you're certainly right. And even if it's kind of like what ESPN did with the Bronx is burning, if you make a series out of it, like where that each would, one gets like an episode that you delve that in would on. Be great. Yeah, and really that was a. It's funny you mention that because that was like an – I completely forgot about that series. That was a great series done by ESPN. You want to know um, one of the biggest Mandela effects in all sports? Of course. So before I came to AM New York Metro, I was a writer at the Bronx Times Reporter where I would never shut up about this. And that is the fact that Howard Cosell – Never said the Bronx is burning, or at least he never said it on air during the World Series. He never said that. Wow. Yep. How about that? You can play it back. You can watch the whole game, and I'll tell you I have. The Bronx is burning. And, it again, there's no way to confirm he didn't say this in between innings or any other time. But during that game, during that broadcast, he never said the Bronx is burning. Jeez. Yeah, but these are things like you, you got to tell the people like you have to alert the masses. That's it's big. It's yeah. The Bronx is burning did not come out of Howard Cosell's mouth on air, at least. Again, he might have said it some other time. Could have been like Bob Euchre in Major League, you know, take over Lonnie. I'm in the bag. But <laughs> something I always like to share with the world. I love that kind of stuff. But that's we a can, great fact. Yeah, I think so. And we could really, really spend an entire 24-hour segment on this. I believe we could. There are other sports that we need to address. Um, Now I want to go to hockey and your thoughts on that. Yeah, for me, there's really only – it's only really two hockey movies for me. Um, And I'll go, I guess, the – the more immature route first in saying what the Mighty Ducks franchise has done for, you know, kids born in the late eighties and early nineties and beyond. Uh, it's a, you know, it's, it has like a cult following. Ducks where, fly together. Yeah. You, you, you still have, you know, 30 year olds kind of out there uh, dropping lines and, and, and wearing, wearing Mighty Ducks shirts and whatnot. Um, so the impact of that can never be understated. Um, but for me, I think the greatest hockey movie of all time, and I think we're in the same boat here, is Miracle. Yep. Um, it, it really it was just a, a a perfect hockey movie in the sense that not only did you know they properly tell a story of one of the greatest sporting moments in in human history, but they got everything right, everything to a T. Uh, you know, 
in terms of the game action and and getting everybody's personas down it was just they did such an incredible job with that movie and and i think at least in my opinion it is the runaway overwhelming number one choice for a hockey movie there are so many things i love about miracle and one particular one is aside from kurt russell there wasn't really a name valued cast and that's what made it such a great movie. Of course, you had guys like Eddie Cahill. But for the most part, it was guys getting their first crack at acting in a real film. And I loved that so much. That you saw new talent for the first time. And they all stepped up just like... And, you know, that was kind of the thing. And I don't know if Disney had done this intentionally. But you almost felt like these were a bunch of new guys... You're hearing their names for the first time, about to tell one of the greatest stories ever, which kind of reflects the actual 1980 team. Like, who the heck are these guys that Herb Brooks picked? Right. And and I remember watching something shortly after the movie came out. I guess there was like a, a documentary or one of those. I know which made. one you're talking about, where they interview Michael Ruzioni and everyone, right? Yeah, stuff like that. But they also talk to like the casting directors and like the behind the scenes people of the movie, uh, basically how they cast the movie. Um, they looked for hockey players first. They looked for skaters. They looked for, you know, people that could pull off the physical movements and, and recreate the game to a T. Um, and then they kind of worried about the acting chops after that. Obviously it was a gamble that paid off in spades because, you know, 15, 16, 17 years on, and, you know, we're still talking about it with uh, the same kind of reverence. Oh, so that's what this is about? Because I didn't take <laughs> you a test? I'll take you a test, Herb. Is that what you want? But but that's such an iconic scene. Or, or how many kids do you see on Facebook giving the miracle speech before their peewee finals or something? That, oh, yeah. And I love talking about the big speech Herb Brooks gave before the big semifinal game against the Soviet Union, because it is so different than the speech he gave during the finals against Finland. And I think you know what he said. Absolutely, I know what he said, and I don't know if it's safe for the airways. We can censor it, but um, absolutely. essentially he goes from, this is your time, go out there and take it. You were born to be hockey players, each and every one of you. Sick and tired of hearing what a great team the Soviets have. You guys are meant to be here to against Finland. I, didn't he say it in between the first and second periods when they were losing? Yes. Yep. He comes into the locker room. They're down, what, 2-0? Uh, I think it was 2-0, yeah. So they're down, manageable comeback. He just goes, if you lose this game, take it to your icing. I'm going to censor it. Grave. <laughs> Walks out, comes back in, your blankety-blank grave. Yeah. So I, I just love that that's another side to what Brooks was. And he coached the Rangers after that in the right. 80s with Craig Patrick as his assistant coach and as someone who's followed the New York Islanders, I know what you know what I'm about to talk about. In 1984, back when the NHL had its divisional, it was the division, right, where it was a five best of five playoff series. Correct. Where the Islanders and Rangers face off against each other in 1984, that best of five goes to overtime, and none other than Team USA's Kenny Morrow scores on Herb Brooks and Craig Patrick to eliminate the Rangers, which is just. Such a a wow moment. Yeah, 
Yeah, and it's and it's still. I mean, for a team that was loaded with big moments throughout the '80s, that's still one of the greatest moments in franchise history. That goal, and and it's uh, one of Morrow's claim to fame. And if you ask him, the, the biggest goal he he scored in his life because that you know Kenny Morrow was always uh, the epitome of a stay-at-home defenseman. He did not light the lamp often. So uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a big moment in, in in Islanders history. But really, I mean. You know, we kind of talk about that Herb Brooks speech and, and how the movie captured the essence of it so perfectly. What always kind of, well, what really stuck with me, um, and, and I saw it last year, you know, you said peewee teams talk about it and professional teams are, are using that speech. And, and I kind of saw it firsthand uh, last year during the first round of the, um, the playoffs. Penguins? But to, between the Islanders and Penguins. Oh my gosh, I was there. I know what you're about to talk about, and I have a video of this. Continue, please. Yep. It was game two. Um, I, again, I'm, I'm there working the game, and there's about 12, 12 minutes left in the third period. It's tied at one. Yep. Uh, so so we're in a commercial break, and you know it, it's at that point, it's kind of like the, the final stretch of action for the game. So what the people, you know, what most major sporting venues do is they try and kind of amp up the crowd through whatever it is, videos or music or whatever it might be. So what the Islanders did is they first showed uh, Sean Bates' penalty shot goal from the 2002 series against the Leafs. I just want you to know I'm getting chills as you say this. Continue. I love it. Um, So obviously the crowd goes nuts. And then they show Sean Bates, who's in attendance. So then the crowd gets even rowdier. And he plays it up, and he's waving his Isles T-shirt, and he's kind of goading the fans on. And usually after that, it, like, kind of dies down. Like, all right, they take the camera off, and they die. You know, it dies down, you know, for the next 30-something seconds or so. Not in the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum. Right. Nope. They showed Herb Brooks' speech, or Kurt Russell's rendition of Herb Brooks' speech for Miracle. This is your time. All, you know, it goes into it, and that place went bananas. And let me tell you, they dropped the puck to restart play. 12 seconds later, Jordan Everly scores. Isles take the game, take a 2 nothing series lead, and they finish off the sweep. So, like, that for me was like, holy crap. Like, this movie just, like, it like it just, it still has it, man. Like, everybody still goes ballistic for it. That moment for me, and I was, um, I covered the second round from uh, from the press box, but the first round... I attended the home games as a fan, and I was right behind the net as that happened, looking up, and I'm going to, when we upload this, I'm going to put the video that I have in it, because I have the video of the Brooks speech, and then I have the video of the goal, that moment, and one of my best friends who is with me, Andrew Adrian, will say the same thing, to witness that live, you felt like the hockey gods just said, have one on me, this is actually your time, this moment was meant to happen. And it just fit the mold because, as you know, the Pittsburgh Penguins have tormented the New York Islanders over the years, particularly in the Sidney Crosby era. So for the Islanders not only to take a two-game lead but to then sweep, it really – that was the equivalent of beating the Soviets for the New York Islanders. Yeah, it was – and I mean, just kind of going back to – Recent memory alone, in, in 2013, it was our first, you know, the Islanders' first playoffs uh, trip in a while. It was like six or seven years. And, uh, you know, the, the Pens are 
they, they've been, they've been the class of the NHL for years now. And it's always been, you know, whether it's been during the regular season and we're, you know, they're trying to get into the playoff conversation or they're in the postseason. The Penguins have always kind of had the Islanders number. And, and, and even after that 2018, 19 season, when the Islanders had 103 points and they were, you know, the, the number two team in the Metro division, um, Everybody was still picking the Penguins, even though the Islanders were the higher seed, even though they had the home ice advantage. And it was just kind of like getting the monkey off your back. It was an exercising of demons of sorts. Uh, and just to get by them was huge. And, and really at the time when they got past the Penguins, and it was I think the next day or, or a couple days after, um, the, the Hurricanes upset the Capitals. Yeah, and and I all of a sudden that. you thought, well, hold on a second. Now the Islanders actually might have a pretty clear path to um, the Eastern Conference Finals, if not the Stanley Cup Finals. And then you know we obviously know what oh, happened. Oh, how wrong the experts were. We we certainly yeah they they were wrong in the first round, and then in the second round when I think everybody kind of jumped on the Islanders bandwagon. Uh, you know, everything kind of came crashing back down to earth. And that was the year of the upset. I mean, the Columbus Blue Jackets, as exciting as what the Islanders did to the Penguins were, what the Columbus Blue Jackets did to Tampa Bay, my goodness gracious. Nobody, obviously nobody saw that comment. I, I, I still can't get over that. And, you know, you just have to think about how Tampa feels. This was supposed to be the redemption season. Like, you know, you come, you lose in the first round, you're swept, you're, one of the greatest regular season teams in NHL history, and you get swept by the lowest seed in the East, and then you come back this year, and again, you're having a strong year, but this is the year you're going to get back over the top, and, and now all of a sudden we're we're in the coronavirus freeze. So, I mean... And you know. same with the Yankees. You know, this was supposed to be the Empire striking back after they traced the Rebels down who blew up the Death Star, Houston. You know, this was supposed to be the huge revenge rematch. Hopefully it finds a way to happen, but it is so frustrating when you look at those situations. Yeah. Yep, and it is, and we're playing the waiting game, unfortunately. Yeah, and again, just like baseball, we could talk about this for days on end. Let's jump over to basketball now. All right. Bas- yeah, see, basketball is – I mean, basketball's had some – obviously, they've had some great movies, and there are so many different avenues that I could take here because I, I think, obviously, growing up, we, we all kind of look at Space Jam as this iconic basketball movie, and, you know, Michael Jordan is the, it was the basketball god, and, and you know, you, you can't – it's it, – it's, it's, I, I can't call it a classic, but I, I, I don't know. It's it's this transcendental, you know, real life live action meets cartoons, and it's just this crazy mishmash of. It's just weird, but at the same time, it's just it works. It works. It's, That's the way to describe perfect. it. And and I again, everybody loves Space Jam and. You know, here we are kind of hoping and waiting for Space Jam 2 to kind of recapture that magic. But at the same time, you know, on a completely different note, and this is more of a documentary, but um, Hoop Dreams to me yeah. is, is, is incredible. It's very um, compelling. The, 
the work that had to be done um, where you're following around, you know, for those that don't know it or want to get into it, um, you know, they follow around these two basketball prodigies through high school um, in Chicago. And they're supposed to be like, you know, these bona fide next level stars. And, you know, obviously at the end of the day, it's about basketball, but at the same time, it kind of, it kind of just shows the the issues of, of everything that was wrong with, you know, I guess in this instance, it's inner city Chicago at the time, you know, the issues of race and class and education. And, um, you know, they just do it so well. And, and it, it's such an undertaking to follow these two guys for years and years. And, and, you know, they don't amount to, you know, these NBA stars that everybody kind of thought they would be when, you know, they, they kind of first reached high school. But again, I think it's just an absolutely brilliant movie. I'd agree with you on that. And I would say in a heartbeat that I believe Hoop Dreams is the best basketball movie out there. My honorable mentions, I'm going to give it to Glory Road. I love that story, which again, touches on issues of segregation and race in starting and an all black five front winning the national championship for it was UTEP, right? Texas El Paso. Yeah, and at the time they were Texas Western, yeah. So that, to me, I love that story growing up. It kind of fell in the shadow of Miracle because it came out around the same time. But if you rewatch that movie now, it is, it's a powerful story, and it's a feel-good one at the end, certainly is. Uh, a goofier one, semi-pro. That's just an honorable mention. <laughs> has to be, has yeah. to be in there. Yeah, semi-pro is hilarious. Now, two... Of the not big four that I want to address, golf. What would you say is the best golf movie? Wow. Uh, I, I have to be honest. Before we get to that, I, I just want to make sure that um, this movie isn't lost. Well, there's actually two movies that aren't lost. Um, for, bas- for basketball, it's Hoosiers. Hoosiers is a classic, and I think you know it's right up there in the conversation of top two or three basketball movies. Um, and then kind of going back to hockey, just because I need to give it a shout-out, because I always loved this movie growing up, Slapshot. I loved oh. it, um, and and that is all that I will say about that. Um, <laughs> but for hockey, uh, or no, I'm sorry, for golf, um, I love the movie with uh, Shia LaBeouf. I think it's called The Greatest Game Ever Played. Yes. Um, I think that was a fantastic movie about uh, Francis Wimette, uh, how this amateur, you know, wins the, uh, the U S open or, or whatever. Yeah. I think it was the U S open, right? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, I yeah, think. I think that was a, a wonderful movie. And again, golf is, you know, you're not going to find many golf movies other and obviously, you know, the, the big one is, is happy Gilmore. Of then course, that's but. where I'm going with my pick. <laughs> there we go. So I will let you get to that, but, uh, on a, I guess under the radar kind of golf movie. I always loved The Greatest Game Ever Played. The Greatest um, Game Ever Played is a phenomenal golf film. And there's another movie that comes to me now. It's an Italian film. It's in Italian about golf. Really? It, yes. And I've only seen bits and pieces of it. But that is a phenomenal golf movie too. I'll and, have to do some research. Yeah, because I can, I can honestly say I – I, I don't go hunting for golf content. Um, that's just, you know, I think it's just me being a American sports fan, you know, 
golf has a following, but it's not as big as the, the major ones. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, for golf, I think it's, and, and obviously you'll go into it. I think it's Happy Gilmore or Bust. Happy Gilmore is the movie of a generation for golf. And <laughs> if you think about it, Bob Barker, in a lot of ways, <laughs> makes that movie. When Adam Sandler fights Bob Barker on a golf course. Oh, man. And, and I loved Bob Barker when I was a kid. He was like this. The price is right. Perfect, yeah, like he was like this perfect, you know, beacon of all that is good. And then he was there just beating <laughs> up Happy Gilmore. I was like, what did you guys do to Bob Barker? Uh, but it, it was it was hilarious. And, and obviously he was a great sport to do that. And and put up with it, but that was like Adam Sandler's glory years, where right? he was just he was just churning out amazing, hilarious comedy after amazing, hilarious comedy. It's all in the hips. It's all. <laughs> Happy Gilmore is such a feel-good movie, and as goofy as it is, it makes you want to. Even if you don't go golfing, it makes you want to go to a driving range or mini golfing or something. It it gets you engaged in the sport in how much of a silly, funny comedy it is, and Ben Stiller making the killer cameo as Hal L. at the retirement home. You will go to sleep, or I will put you to sleep. <laughs> yeah, and, and really, I think one of the more underrated movie villains, cause, because it's a comedy, McGavin. Shooter McGavin. I mean, I, who, who likes Shooter McGavin? Guy was an absolute jerk, a grade A tool, and 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 it was, I, I, the actor's name, of course, is escaping me. But he he hit the nail on the head. It was absolutely perfect. Where you know you just wanted to see the guy lose, and 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 boy, you were feeling good when he did. But uh, yeah, I, I I really like to put Shooter McGavin on my list of all time villains, alongside you know like Darth Vader. Darth Vader is the, and we'll talk about this again another time because that's a whole, <laughs> whole another, and again another James Earl Jones role. Um, I think Darth Vader's the best movie villain ever because of how misunderstood he is. But again, we will talk about that on a separate show. I promise you. The actor who plays Shooter McGavin is Christopher McDonald. That's it. You know how am I supposed to chip with that going on out there? <laughs> what was it? Oh, you. Oh, you learned how to count. And you, you can count, count on me, on me Wait. waiting for you in the parking lot. <laughs> Mr. Larson, such a great character. Love it. Oh, Love man. It. That, oh, that brings back such great memories. Happy Gilmore for golf. And again, we'd go more into this if we had the time. Um, a track and field movie that I love that a lot of people should see is McFarland, USA. Yeah, you know, I've, I've been kind of recommended that movie over the past, like, year or two. And if I'm not mistaken, I think I saw it on Netflix for a sec, but um, I never actually got around to watching it. But I will now listen to your um, your review on it because uh, I will probably be watching it soon because I have nothing better to watch. It's such a feel-good story about a little poor, mostly Latino community in California, nowhere near the coast. They're like mainland California. The school doesn't even have a track and field team. This coach gets brought in, and it's based on a true story, which makes 
what happens even more feel good. And he gathers this group of kids and he turns them into these track stars. He gives them a purpose that they hadn't felt before. And it, it's such a great feel good movie. They end up winning their big, their big meet at the end. And just the fact that it, it is something that really happened. And you see how a coach comes in and is able to turn these kids lives around and give them so many of them ended up going to college because he got them invested in academics, which was something unheard of at the time in, in where they lived. So that's a great real life story about a small high school and people making a difference. I, I personally love that. If you have the time, it's worth the watch. And yeah, that that's my spiel on McFarland <laughs> USA. Now we're going to go to the big one, football. Oh, man. Um, yeah, see, football, well, two immediately pop in my mind. Uh, one is the replacements, because uh, I will always love Keanu Reeves. Um, and the second is Remember the Titans. Remember the Titans. Uh, and, and I'm going to be honest. I saw Remember the Titans when it came out in theaters, and I think I probably watched it maybe once or twice more in the 20-plus years that it's been out uh, because it's just one of those, like, perfectly emotional, heart-wrenching triumphs of a movie where it's just like I do not have the emotional fortitude to sit down and watch this. I am just... Like, I, I just can't take it. Like, it's just too intense, and it's 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 such a wonderful movie. Uh, and it, it just captures I, the essence of what was going on at that time in the 60s and, and you know, into, with integration and, and uh, you know, the underdog story. It's just so many feel-good factors to it. And yeah, you know, I... It's one of those where it's like, well, do I feel like crying today? And most of the time, <laughs> the answer is no. So I, I, I like to not watch it, but it's it's one of those movies where you know you know its impact, you know how amazing it is, and it's you know it's it's always going to be there. So for football, I have a few strong takes. One of my ones, I'll get it out of the way, which does not usually end up in a cathartic moment. Uh, the Water Boy, and again. Adam Sandler, oh, yeah. especially when he does his sports movies, there's this underlying message of don't treat people different or don't treat people bad because they are different. And th that's something that I love. And it's some it's a very universal message in a sense of, you know, the mud dogs become a team and they become a team around this. If we are talking Baba Boucher, yes, not only will I do it for me, Coach Khan, but but Yes, I will, I will do it for you. That's pretty good. Well, 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 but then, th th thank you very much, Captain Infamous. <laughs> but um, but I, I just I love that in all of the goofiness, there is that sincere tone of treat people well, even if they're different than you. And these are things that are meant to bring us together, not keep us apart. So for that reason and the fact that it's a hilarious movie, Harry Winkler does a great job. I just I, I love the Water Boy. Some more serious ones. Big fan of We Are Marshall. Yeah, yeah, that's um, 
that's definitely up there. Again, it's, you know, I, I try not to, I, I try to watch movies not to be like sad. Um, and, and really, I, you know, obviously if you know that story, just in the beginning is just, it's hard. It's heart wrenching. Um, it really is. Exactly. And I, you know, it, I, but the ensuing story after that, it, it's so uplifting and, and motivating, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's one of those movies where if, you know, it's on TV and like, I'm like, I'm not going to stop because like, I can't, I can't deal with the emotions. I'm the, I'm the same way you are. I don't enjoy putting myself in a bad mood. I, I don't understand the, why people want to get these extremely emotional. And as I said before, cathartic feelings, I want to watch something that just makes me feel good. But to me, the redemption in We Are Marshall is the redemption in the rebuilding of the team that everything goes on. And there are two moments that I particularly enjoy. And one of them is when Matthew McConaughey begins his recruiting and he like, he sees a soccer player and he, he pulls him in. And then later on the punter, he's like, well, well I'm, I'm just a kicker coach. And he doesn't understand that he's supposed to tackle on the field. And then later in the game, he does. I like seeing that come full circle, but the real powerful moment, and I wouldn't call it a sad one as much as an inspirational one, is when they're throwing the pass and you get the flashback of everything at the very end yeah. against, who was it, Xavier they were playing? I think I think it was Xavier, yeah. And that, to me, that was an excellent, an excellent cinematic use of a flashback. Seeing that just, oh, man, it, it hits you with the power of the story. And that's why I love that movie, not because it's sad, but because they rebuild and it brings everyone together. And you even see Bobby Bowden at West Virginia at the time. There's a big moment where he shows that even though they're arch rivals, what do they play for the keg and nails? Is that the big West Virginia Marshall game? Yeah. 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 Yep. Even in that they rise above and they help them get their program back together. So for those reasons, I am very compelled to enjoy We Are Marshall. I think that that's great. And as you know, I have affinity towards the University of Notre Dame. But Oh, boy. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to surprise you with this one. Okay. I'm, I'm going to say that out of all the, the great movies made about Notre Dame, Newt Rockney, All-American, Spirit of Notre Dame, Rudy, kind of like what many people say about Die Hard being a Christmas movie, I don't view Rudy as a football movie. Really? Football is the medium, but it's not about the team. It's not about Ara Parsegan or Dan Devine or how Notre Dame was in the chase for the national championship that year. It was a story about Daniel Eugene Rudiger's work ethic and how he could do something that wasn't believed to be done. There are other movies actually about Notre Dame football. Rudy sure. is not one. I, you know what I mean? I, yeah, and I think along those same lines, why we don't talk about it more, but like um, the Disney movie, Invincible, about Vince Papali oh. and the Eagles. Again, like a, to- a great motivating movie, but again, like it's not about the Eagles per se. It's about Vince Papali defying the odds and making the team. Um, I, You know, I, I really like that movie. Um, you know, I think – the fact that it's a Disney movie kind of handcuffs uh, some of the storyline in a way. Um, but 
I mean, I still think they did a great job. Like, uh, you know, that first game in Dallas against the Cowboys, I think they, they were great making sure that, you know, you saw Roger Staubach and, um, you know, Tom Landry walking in from a distance. I think they, they really kind of captured that great. But um, I, I, I do have to put a movie on this list, on this football list, because when I was a kid, uh, and this is from what my parents have told me growing up, I watched it so many times that I actually wore the VHS tape out. Oh, my and gosh. I, I guess broke it. Uh, Little Giants. Yes. I was hoping you would go there, because if you didn't, <laughs> I would. Um. I I mean that was my favorite movie as a kid because you know it was a sports movie that I could watch as a you know say I, I'm guessing a three or four or a five year old and um, it, it, of course it ends with uh, my Giants uh, my home my childhood team the Giants beating the the Cowboys so yep, I mean nothing better than that and you know there's right? always a job for my brother at what was it O'Shea Auto Parts or. That's it, O'Shea, O'Shea Auto Parts. And oh, Little Giants is a great film. And what makes it even better, you know, you have them tossing the toilet paper, getting ready for the game. Um, I love <laughs> when uh, John Madden and the rest of the um, the Hall of Famers. Oh, yeah. When they yeah, come by a- and they show them everything. And the, kids, the kid tells John Madden about a play that he ran in the Super Bowl and everything. The annexation of Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. Yeah. That's- <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it was. Uh, I know Bruce Smith and Emmett Smith were with Madden on the bus there. But uh, let, let me tell you, uh, even to this day, like if I'm like in a grocery store or I have to go downstairs and you know I I, I get toilet paper, you go long. You know, like a, a single roll. Like yeah, you got you got to go long, man. Like that's just <laughs> it's hot hands. Like when I was in college, I had a. I had a little hot hands T-shirt, and, you know. It had the number eighty-eight, and had the hand prints from the from the, yeah, uh, the from the stickum yeah. on the shirt. I mean, it's a great movie. And, and listen, Icebox, I loved. I think Icebox was such an important character. And and again, I'm I'm kind of getting existential on basically a kids' movie, but um, Icebox was an important character because it girls showed play that football too. you know, yeah, girls can you know kind of throw away the pom-poms and hey if you want to play football like you're you're always welcome here and they gave her lawrence taylor's number 56 so that was double props nod. for that that was really that was a great way to to put all the pieces together and, and going off like icebox and stuff growing up when i played peewee football or as we called it in Massapequa, mustangs football we played with girls in our league and it just felt very natural we never had, and I'm happy to say, and maybe it was not just because of Little Giants, but because of the progression. We never really grew up with the feeling of like, oh, you guys have a girl on your team. It, it was more like, oh my God, you guys have a girl on your team. She hits hard. Like, it was intimidating. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and yeah. Ho- hopefully, you know, and I'd like to think that today it's becoming the norm more and more um, that, you know, Everybody should be allowed to play sports, man. It's uh, it should be like a constitutional right. It it should be so universal, and and you're so right about that. And yeah, I, I think that's. Do you have any more for football movies? There's one point I want to say about the movie Rudy, which was excluded from the film. That I, I don't understand why. I, I feel like it only makes it a more 
compelling story. And that is that before Rudy went to Notre Dame, he served in the Navy. See, I had no idea. I don't get why they omitted that. Maybe it was to make him seem younger or whatever, but to me that makes the story even more compelling is that you have a kid who comes from the outskirts of Chicago living in a field, um, excuse me, like a steel town where, oh man, it's, it's just, he goes, he serves in the United States military. He's believed that that will be the pinnacle of his life. And then he's going to work in a steel mill for the rest of his life. And not only does he go to Notre Dame, he makes the team and he ends up actually getting in the action and dressing for a game. To me, that just shows how much dedication and how much heart that Rudy actually had. But again, to me, that's why it's not a football movie. It's a story about his own personal perseverance using the medium, the you know, the truthful, the real story medium of Notre Dame football for that to happen. But that's a story about his individual life to me. We're both from Long Island, but I kind of grew up on Long Island not being tied to any college football team or necessarily following college football because, you know. Oh, you didn't follow your college's team? <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> but, uh, actually, I'll tell you what. I used to go to a few Hofstra football games when I was a kid. So did uh, I. At, d- during the times of, of Wayne Kerbet and, and, and whatnot. I, you know, I remember going. My dad took me to a game. I, I can't even tell you the year, uh, but it was about. 10 degrees outside and, and, uh, they lost to Youngstown state. Um, but yeah, you know, college football isn't this huge, well, most of college athletics aren't necessarily big here on Long Island and they aren't really big in, in, in the city obviously as well. Um, cause it's just, you know, New York's, New York is a, a pro sports town. Yeah. New York or technically New Jersey, but you know, if the giants and jets count as, New York, then Rutgers football should count as New York as well. And New York has a big 10 team then. Yeah. And, you know, once they actually kind of find their legs and aren't just a doormat or a runover in that conference, I think then they'll, uh, you know, you might see interest in the game growing because, you know, I've, I've, I've been to a Rutgers game, you know, I've, I saw them play Indiana and I, I saw Tevin Coleman light him up for like 300 and something rushing yards. It was uh, you know, it was it was embarrassing for them almost. But I mean, they got a great stadium, uh, a great culture over there. So hopefully, in, in only a matter of time until they kind of start picking things up, and then who knows? Maybe New York becomes uh, that much more invested in college football rather than just waiting for uh, you know bowl season. Yeah, and just as St. John's does when they play some games at MSG. I don't see why Rutgers can't do its big game at the Meadowlands. Yeah, that uh, that that actually makes perfect sense. If they have a huge program coming to visit, say whatever that might be, an Ohio Michigan State or, or Ohio Michigan, State, yeah. or, yep, if they can come in here, yeah, put them at Giant Stadium. See if you can get you know fifty, sixty, seventy thousand in there because you know. You have Michigan fans here around the area, and you have Ohio State fans here around the area. And Give it a shot. What yeah, you, in the city. Yeah, what do you have to lose? I cert- And it worked with a Notre Dame example. It worked with Notre Dame-Syracuse. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they, they filled so much of the Meadowlands, particularly when both teams were very competitive a few seasons ago. The Yankee Stadium game went successful. You could put Rutgers in Yankee Stadium or even give City Field a shot at football. 
I would like to see a football game at City Field. I love seeing multi-purpose or stadiums purpose for one task being used for something else if it's efficient. I get a kick out of that. I really do. And having the if it was a Winter Classic or Stadium Series at Falcon Stadium where the Air Force Academy is, I thought that was awesome. I really yeah. did. I, I I love that kind of stuff. I get a real kick out of it. And I would like to see New York proudly promote more of its college teams. And the same thing with Army. Army's really come out of the dark. And I would love to see them get a MetLife or a Yankee Stadium game which they occasionally get, again, against Notre Dame because it's two huge New York followings. But I would like to see the Black Knights of Army be able to draw enough of a crowd, and maybe it's when they play Air Force, which is just as an intense rivalry as when they play Navy. Put that game at Yankee Stadium or something. Sure. And and really, I mean, why not have an Army-Navy game at MetLife Stadium? I, I understand that. I get why they do Philly as a neutral site, halfway from right. Annapolis, halfway to New York, but you're so right about that. Right. I mean, you know, what's what's one year going to do? I, I, and it's still a sizable trip for both teams. I mean, it's not like, uh, you know, Army's taking a 15-minute bus ride or something like that. So, uh, I mean, anything to grow the game because I, I feel like College football is, is wildly popular. I know that. But I feel like there's so much untapped potential just in the New York area alone where I feel like the NCAA kind of like shrugs their shoulders and say, well, you know, what are you going to do? New York's a pro sports town. But I feel like that there are so many options that they could take to kind of bring back the interest. And, and you think about it, going back to the origin of college football, like, the original programs were all Northeastern teams, you know, yeah. Harvard and, and Princeton and Jersey and Yale and Rutgers, obviously. So, you know, you can do something off of that. You can make a like an old school rivalry out of that or some kind of special event in the area and have it at New York City and have all the original college programs of the area come in and, and descend upon MetLife Stadium. Just do something like that. Yeah, Anything. You've got Columbia, too. One of the Absolutely. original Columbia. Ivy Leagues. And you can even play that in Manhattan. That's the most yep. exciting part. Exactly. Fordham, right? Fordham is one of the original programs, I'm sure. They go back a very long way. Vince so. Lombardi played there. What was that? Vince Lombardi played at Fordham. That's right. Yep. Absolutely. I, I, I feel like there's just so much untapped potential there that they could have a lot of fun with it. And, you know. Don't take it too serious, but they could have some really fun events around New York that kind of channels into the college football pipeline. I certainly agree, and I think another thing, and I'm sure you're going to agree with me on this, is uh, reinstating one college football team in Nassau County. I <laughs> yeah, that actually that sounds like be. a really good idea. Especially if there's only going to be FCS football or low-program football because – there's just less crowding. I would, well, personally, I'd go crazy for Hofstra football, but even if a team like Army was the only thing we got and, and those sort of programs, now, you know, now is the time to do it. Everyone has been depraved. I think today, which is the day before this release is on Thursday, I think it's 50 days without sports now. Yeah, yep, it has been. So that just... It's the perfect time to 
not just come back, but make it bigger and better. And when you look at tragedies that New York has faced, it's always been like, we're not just going to come back, we're going to do it better. So now, in addition to being the capital of professional sports, guess what? We're going to stake a claim in college, too. That would be, I mean, that, that would be perfect. I mean, where it's just constant year-round, there's always going to be something. So, yeah, I mean, they should, you know, the NCAA should probably call us up and ask for our opinion here if they're not listening already. So, I also wish that they would expand the playoff to eight teams. Not so much for more teams being able to compete for a national championship, but for smaller programs to get opportunities to go to bigger bowls that would have been filled by the eight through five teams. Now you have a chance for a smaller team that had a really impressive season to maybe it won't technically be the Rose Bowl, but you get them to go to the Citrus Bowl, the Outback Bowl, the the New Year's Day stuff. So I think that expanding the playoff is more inclusive for smaller programs to get a national spotlight game. Yeah, I, I actually really like that idea. Um, it kind of gives the little guys a true moment to grab the spotlight of their own. And yeah, you know, the, the New Year's Six, that's the, you know, that's a hallowed day in college football. So, I mean, that's a, that's a benchmark moment for, for some of these smaller programs. So that, that would be really cool to see. And, and I think college football at some point should step in and kind of outlaw these glorified warm-up games because you kind of touched on it earlier. Alabama should never be playing a regular season game against the Citadel or Georgia State or something like that. So I, uh, I don't know. I think uh, you would get uh, higher ratings for college football that way. Uh, I think if week in, week out, uh, you know, ranked teams were playing something close to ranked teams every week instead of just, you know, there being one or two big games a week. You're all of a sudden having 10 or 15 huge games a week. I mean, uh, it, it would be nonstop. And I feel like uh, the NCAA should have kind of realized this earlier, but uh, I guess there are no rules to kind of outlaw teams from doing that. So. That's why you'll see Alabama putting up 13-0, and 12-1 seasons every year, and uh, they're always in the national championship conversation. I think the most appropriate way to do it is if you have teams that are practically FCS, if not Division II, it's just automatically you can't be in the top four, a.k.a. you miss the playoff if you're not going to challenge yourself. Yeah. Just automatically the schedule is reviewed in, or a list of teams. Like, if you are of this class or this ranking and you play any team starting here or below, you will not qualify for the playoff. Right. Your strength of schedule has to be a certain strength. So or, it's, it's, it, it's a novel concept. I, I feel like this should, be, this should be a given at this point. And the, the devil's advocate to that, which I don't agree with, but I see in the logic, is then you have more upsets. And then you have big money-making programs missing the playoff because of that week three upset loss, Michigan and Appalachian State, or so on and so forth. You have those games that shouldn't have happened, and all of a sudden Alabama, which is in a lot of ways like the New York Yankees of 
baseball, uh, baseball, not baseball, college football, <laughs> missing the yeah. playoff because they had that September loss. And then another school, which wouldn't have had a chance, which doesn't have the flow of revenue that the NCAA would make, takes that spot. So I, I get yeah. why they give the big programs easy schedules and allow it because they make more money when it's Alabama LSU in the playoffs. They make more money that way rather than seeing University of Central Florida make the playoff. As exciting as that is for us, it's not profitable for them, which is sad, right. but uh, I'm keeping it cold. I'm keeping it realistic here. They want to make as much money as possible. Of course, and I think a lot of fans would be you know, hoping and wishing for parity uh, rather than obviously – the NCAA, which to me is the most corrupt organization in the United States, and not many things will change my mind about that. Um, I don't blame you. I don't doubt you yeah, one bit. Yeah, you know, I think we, I'd much rather see UCF playing for a national championship than seeing uh, a bunch of uh, rich people lining their pockets uh, at the expense of student athletes who apparently aren't allowed to get paid. So, um, you know, I, uh, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of work when it comes to properly fixing college football, and obviously you're not going to get a lot of complaints from the folks down south in the SEC who are trotting out national title uh, competitors every year. But uh, I think what would make college football even better is legitimate parity and yeah. knowing that you can enter a season in Oh well, you know what? In uh, you know last week of August, I can't predict uh, at least two of the final four teams uh, that are going to be playing for a national title. So uh, I think that would kind of add to the anarchy of the situation, and I think fans would get a kick out of that. And let me say, neutral fans would get a kick out of that. And I think there are a lot more neutral college football fans than uh, I would say, you know fans of uh, just one school, for example. I, I really hope that our readers brought their notebooks and, 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 and took some notes because <laughs> I think we dropped an abundance of knowledge on them uh, today. Well, Joe, do you have any final thoughts on the movies before we wrap up? Uh, I mean, now is the time to watch them. Uh, you know, it's uh, not much else on the airwaves or on the tube. Uh, so give it a shot. Watch. Uh, I'm going to be watching McFarland for sure. I'll definitely watch that. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm looking forward to upping my cinematic knowledge. I certainly have a lot that I need to check out too. I might watch the greatest. Was it the greatest game ever played? Yes. 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 Yeah, I got to check that out. And, oh man, you know, at least we can still talk about sports. And now is the time, kind of like what. ESPN and Disney are doing with the Michael Jordan documentary. Now's a great time to be reflective. I really think so. Right. You know, kind of be thankful for what we've had and hold on to it moving forward when all this clears up. Oh, we have some breaking news actually on, um, on this show. The 2020 Little League World Series was canceled just now. Ah, well, I mean – Figures it would happen. Uh, we all saw it coming. Uh, it usually starts around July, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, it's a, a certainly 
Little League is an amazing institution and, uh, you know, kind of gives a lot of these kids that, uh, that big league feel. And I, I mean, I love it. I love watching it. And, um, you know, I love seeing the kids kind of relish the opportunity to play on the big stage, but yeah, uh, if we're not putting professionals in, uh, in danger, if they're not playing baseball anytime soon, then certainly there should be no reason why young kids should be traveling and, and putting their, their lives at risk for, uh, for this. So, you know, I'm sure it stinks for them. I'm sure there are teams that were, you know, really hopeful to qualify and whatnot, but, uh, you know, in the long run, it's worth it. I promise. And hopefully, uh, They'll make an exception and invite some of the kids that may be aged out to come back and play in like a different tournament next year. I think certainly they should do a new age bracket for that minimum. Definitely, I, I think that that's the appropriate way to do it. And now that I think about it, I think a cool film would also be one about the Little League World Series. Definitely, yeah, that would be great. I mean, you know, that 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 would be that'd be a kids movie that you know today's kids can kind of put up against our version of the Sandlot and you know, Rookie of the Year and Angels in the Outfield and Little Big League. So I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, and you could actually use, like, ESPN camera angles, film it out in Pennsylvania in Williamsport, and almost do it, like, where you're filming real games, too. Definitely. I, that, that, yeah, that'd be brilliant. Well, you know what? Hey, you, uh, you know, in, in your spare time, you can, uh, you, you can maybe direct something awesome like that. Yeah, you know, Disney execs, if you're listening, we got some stories for you. We really do. There it is. There it is. Hit us up. Absolutely. Joe, you know I'm going to have you back on soon. Once again, thank you for joining AM Rush today. Oh, this is this is the biggest show we've done, and I think a lot of people are going to enjoy it going into their weekend. <laughs> well, thank you again, Alex, for having me. And, yeah, can't wait for the next one. And stay safe out there, everyone. And, yeah, enjoy listening. Absolutely. Joe, take care. Best of luck to you. We'll see you soon. All right, brother, you too. I need to go watch some movies. This is the perfect weekend to do it. It it looks like the weather's going to be yucky and everything. Now is the opportunity to go binge and check out some sports movies that you've been missing out on. Another one that I highly recommend in the soccer genre, which actually has a 90 on Rotten Tomatoes, even though it's a little lesser known, Shaolin Soccer. That movie is quite the hit. Thank you for all listening. We're going to have another AM Rush Sports episode coming up pretty soon. New York, you're the best. Hang tough. We can do this.